1: worship band, as they call them, in his church, you know, took initiative and gave leadership and sort of open, forthright faith, uh, and goes off to a big university and, you know, comes back and tells his parents, you know, I love you very, 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 very much, but I no longer believe what you believe. Um, I love you very much, you need to know that, but I'm no longer where you are, really. So... You know, I get a request if I would talk to him, and so we meet at a, a Starbucks, you know, in a mor- for a morning conversation, and um, and of course I know who he is, I know his family, never really talked to him before, so we spend a long time just getting to know each other a little bit, and me asking, so you went to school, and what were you studying, what were you reading, and I know a little bit about that school too, and professors were there, and you the interaction with them, and you know. What have you been reading that has persuaded you that your parents' faith no longer is your faith? Um, and he's an articulate, winsome, interesting person, and he has always a lot of things to say about that. And and so we are, you know, talking about all this, and you know, pretty clearly, he's sure that if his parents had read the same books he had read, they would think differently too. He's not angry at them. He's not dis- he isn't dismissive of them but he knows that he has read more things than they've read. And that's why he sees things as he does, um, even as he honors his parents. So this went on for you know a couple of hours at least, I suppose. And I won't go blow by blow through it, but eventually we got back to when he began to disconnect. And actually it was in his last year of high school. He'd taken a course in social psychology uh, um, from a high school teacher. And in the course of the semester in the year, the teacher persuaded him that, that what he believed is because his parents believed, because his church believed, and that's why he believed what he believed. And, um, well, I heard him say all that, but again, because my own assumption is always that it's never going to be first and last, an epistemological problem. It will always be more fundamentally, if we can get to it, and sometimes we can't. 'Cause there's not a willingness to be candid or open hearted about it. But if we're able to do that, I'm always assuming if I can find the right way in, we can find a way into a conversation about in fact what was going on in life that made you begin to see things differently. So, in some sense, it's not that we can compartmentalize or we can, you know, say, Well, I am a body, I am a mind, I am a soul, I am a heart. I mean we are all twined together mysteriously and, you know, wonderfully and surprisingly, we are, really. So on the one hand, his own self-perception was it was that course I took. That's how he would tell his story. But as I asked more questions, what he eventually said to me was, well, you see, it was also that I wanted to begin to relate to girls differently than I always had as an adolescent. And he began to talk about that, and essentially what he was saying was I wanted to begin to live outside of the constraints of the Christian vision of love and of life and of relationships and of a moral universe, and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Um, we have talked since then, and, and even though we talk for hours about this, and it always for him seems to be, if you would just read Dawkins like I have, or if you would just read this, or if you would just, you know, and... And yet, always in the conversation, it always comes back eventually to some sort of little window into his life, into his heart, into, in fact, I'd like to make up the rules about the world I live in. I want to live in it like I want to live in it. Um, I don't mean that to be a cheap, you know, description or a easily found, like, you know, one, two, three, and it's always the same story. Um, But I do think that the reading of Romans 1 is universally true. That God has made himself so clear, so clearly revealed uh, you know, who he is and who we are and what the world is like, and that we're without excuse. And so one of the gifts of my father to me, again, speaking into this university community is it is, but one of my father's gifts to me was to see that it was never a matter of who had the better Ph.D. We were never going to debate that, really, as if somehow your Ph.D. is from a better school than yours is, and therefore that's why you've concluded what you have. Now, clearly there are things to read and there are ideas to ponder and there are ways to understand the, the world and you could be less sophisticated more sophisticated and I'm not you know denying the importance of doing honest study and thinking things through really but I came to believe in fact that it's never a matter of you know who's smarter in, in, in this conversation finally because equally gifted people with equally you know prestigious or honorable or you know prized PhDs can come to deeply different conclusions about the nature of the universe. They can look at the same stuff, the same facts, so to speak. And they conclude very differently about the nature of life. What life is, who we are, what God is there a God or not, or what's the universe like? Is there a moral universe? What is it? I mean we answer those questions differently, not because one person is smarter than the other. And I think in some time I think often there is the impression given that in fact that's what it's always about. Have you done more reading? Have you done more study? Have you done a better degree? And I never, I've come to the, you know, I think years ago, my father helped me to see the fact that, you know, as he put it, as, you know, the scientist he was, the longer he looked through the microscope, the more sure it was a created universe. Now, that's a confessional statement to make, and obviously people with equally, you know, earned PhDs could look at the same microscope and say, I don't think so, really. So it wasn't a matter of IQs or, you know, anything like that. It was more something deeper was going on. And I think what Romans 1 teaches is, and maybe all of Romans teaches, is it's a matter of the heart. And so for me, Linda, I'm always going to try to find a way in through the conversation to something where there's an ownership of, you know, how you want to live, how you choose to see the world because you want to live a certain way. And again, I would just underscore that's not a cheap route. It isn't a, a one, two, three. That's always the same story. Is that fair? Yeah. Anybody else about where we are? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, like the car, the, car I mean, the bagel operator, bagel store, and I mean, that we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, we want, if you wanted to talk, we could talk about that. I mean, you know, the guy who has patents written into your cell phone and mine calls himself a serial entrepreneur. And I have been his friend for a long time, and he has had hives sometimes. Um, and that's lasted for way too long in his life because his ideas just didn't go anywhere. Um, I mean, he had an idea, he had a you know, a lawyer working on it, and he had money at stake in this, and it just didn't happen, really. Um, as I watch my good friend, I would say he lives on a roller coaster. You know? I mean sometimes the ideas, you know, just don't go anywhere at all, though you would think it ought to, but it just doesn't. And then there are other times where, you know, the right conversation happens and the right law firm gets involved and the right marketing moment happens in global history and, and then all of a sudden you think, you know, as he said to me last summer, I just paid off my kids' college education, you know. That was after several years of You know, not being there at all, really. Um, uh, uh, You know, I talked to somebody this past week who I knew in his Carnegie Mellon PhD years, and you know, he busted his way through. Since you guys are in this community, you know, when somebody does a double E PhD and does it in you know four years, just in a disciplined way, he's worked hard at it, really. Uh, And uh, so he did that with great discipline and went off to do something and then had an idea for a company, an idea to take his academic training into the marketplace, and it just flubbed. Uh, Another idea a few years later, and that worked a little bit better. Another idea, and it worked even better than that. I mean, those are the stories of my life, really. Uh, Probably yours, too. Which is why I told the story of Daniel as I did. You know, the very last word of Daniel's life, as we have it recorded in the book of Daniel, is, he didn't understand. And even after God had spoken to him and said, this is for you, Daniel. This is the way the world is going to be, and it's for you, Daniel. The very last words in the book of Daniel are, and he did not understand. Uh, and I mean that. You know, it's important. It's a, it's a gift to me to hear those words. Yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. hmm Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. A so a trial, mm-hmm. They might to fly, but don't try Yeah. And, and say, I'm not going to try because mm-hmm. I just hmm Because I Yeah. But then mm-hmm. 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 Like marriage, huh? Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. Again, if you don't mind, I'll just say one of the surprises in Wendell Berry's writing to me is that he could write about the most sort of, you know, far away from marriage and family question you might imagine in an essay. And then come back almost always in his essays with a sentence where he says, you see, it's a lot like marriage. Um, and I think he's right. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a professor at Westminster Seminary who's now died, named Harvey Kahn, who spent much of his life in South Korea as a missionary. Then came to teach in Philadelphia at Westminster and um, just to. Keep all the dots connected for you. Some of you would be appreciative of Tim Keller's work these days. Um, but he would say that Harvey Kahn was a huge influence on him in his own Westminster Seminary training. Um, Kahn taught missiology and, and evangelism and apologetics at Westminster for a long time. But I remember a book that Harvey wrote uh, some years ago that I've often thought was as good a way to respond to the honest question you've asked about this that I've seen. It was called Evangelism colon, Doing Justice and Preaching Grace. And he did something surprising in the book because he just he worked really really hard uh, at arguing that taking the gospel into the world, the work of evangelism, um, was always to be held together as these two seen together, doing justice, preaching grace. And on the one hand, his own experience in South Korea was one where he had a remarkable, surprising ministry going into the train stations of South Korea and. Getting on his haunches, literally, he's a tall man, really, on his haunches, and having a gospel-driven, you know, ministry of presence and, and word, you know, to people who were prostitutes and on the streets of, you know, of of, Seoul, of in South Korea, and uh, at the same time, somebody who spent the last years of his life teaching apologetics and missiology, and and uh, but putting in this book, um, evangelism colon doing justice, and preaching grace. Another treatment of the same question is by John Stott. Um, uh, In the late 70s, he gave five lectures at Oxford University, and he was asked to, in the lectures, he chose to define five words in these lectures. And the first word is the word mission. And um, he does what typically Stott would have done any time, was this deeply, richly thoughtful biblical exploration of the meaning of mission in the scriptures and in church history. Uh, and arguing that this has to be bound up with, you know, who we are as human beings. So biblical anthropology is at the heart of all this. But also asking the question, so what did Christ come to do? Because Jesus says repeatedly in the Gospel of John, uh, as I was sent into the world, so I send you. So stop makes the argument that he makes his mission the model for ours. That's the heart of the argument. But what he does in it is he, he really, I think, addresses as well as I've seen anybody do, actually, this question you've raised about what we call the Great Commission and, and the work of evangelism in the world and discipleship, and, and, but doing so in a way which is shaped by what he reads as the anthropology that comes out of the Bible, it's teaching, but also then the missiology of Jesus himself. Why did Jesus come into the world? And um, twines those two together, anthropology and, and missiology. Um, and uh, So, it's, the book's called Christian Mission in the Modern World, if you would be interested I've ever in seeing that, really. Um, Christian Mission in the Modern World. I have to just say that you guys are impressive people to me. I mean, this is a Saturday after all. Um, and that you would be willing to do this, I mean, it amazes me and surprises me. And I would just say, you know, thanks be to God and thanks be to all of you. So.
0: Oh well, we're grateful. Uh, I just have two, two or three questions here. Uh, here's one: What do you think of Harry Potter stories and <laughs> movies? So, uh-huh. it's just one, yeah. w- or one or two sentences on that. Mm-hmm. I have five
1: children, and they all love Harry Potter, um, uh, and I'm not sure yet. You know. I'm not the person who you know is sure that it's of the devil I'm not there at all really um, uh, I mean some people you read and they're sure this is on the other side of the moral universe and I'm not I'm not persuaded of that at all really um, I'm just you know I haven't read you know carefully as my kids have read I mean I took my son Jonathan with me to South Carolina a few years ago when he was more like 10 years old so he's more he's 23 now so this is quite a few years I guess but We drove down to South Carolina to do something kind of like this, and he came with me, and he read one book we had already with us twice on the road to South Carolina. We stopped in a Borders bookstore when Borders was still alive and well, bought the next book that was out. He read that between that Borders and getting home that night. (laughs) Uh, So he has just consumed Harry Potter in his life, Um, and... uh, Okay.
0: Uh, How do you deal with people who militantly insist that the only Christian approach is the equivalent of fish-shaped fries fried in trans fat? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who asked that question, huh? Uh -huh. Uh Uh-huh. One or two sentences on that one.
1: You want to say something about it?
0: He asked that question. Uh Uh-huh. Mm
1: -hmm. So Hans Ruckmacher was one of my teachers. Anybody know who Hans Ruckmacher was? He died some years ago. But Hans Ruckmacher was a professor of art history in Amsterdam, and I learned a lot of things from him. But um, he gave a lecture one time, and he told this little fictional story, which I think is pretty good. But he imagined, you know, you having trouble with your faucet in your kitchen, and you getting into the Yellow Pages, and you finding... In the Yellow Pages. Here's Joe the plumber, and he's got an ichthus stamped on his advertisement. You think, well, great, a Christian plumber, you know. And you call him up, and you have him come, and he gets under his your sink, and he gets his tools out, and he just talks and talks and talks to you about Jesus the whole time. He's fixing your pipes, really. And that's okay, you know. You're willing to have that. Maybe you're glad that he's has an open faith, and you know, he, maybe he doesn't really know who you are, but you've seen his ichthus, and you're kind of drawn in. But he's Wanted to make sure that you know that that he does this and he want because of his love for Jesus and he wants you to love Jesus too. And Ruckmacher says, Well, okay, 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 but you know, when he walks away and he you pay your bill and your pipes still leak leak, is he a Christian plumber? We could talk about it a long time, but that's sort of how I see it.
0: Okay. Uh, other than Jeremiah 29, are there other places in Scripture that support the notion of seeking the flourishing of the city <laughs> mm-hmm. or common grace for the common good? Yeah. Also, <laughs> doesn't it seem as if Scripture overwhelmingly supports the notion of doing ministry overtly in the name of Christ as his witnesses? Mm-hmm. Matthew five sixteen. Two years ago, I was asked by
1: a man who was a senior advisor to the president of Campus Crusade for Christ if I'd join him in Mexico City for a gathering of Campus Crusade leaders from around the world. He'd taken a course on vocation that I taught in Washington, D.C., and at the end of the course, it was a month-long course. It wasn't a long time, but just a month. And at the end of the he gave me his card. He said, Hi, can we talk some more? And I looked at his card, and it said, Dr. Robert Varney, senior advisor to the president of Campus Crusade for Christ said to me, I think we've been teaching vocation wrong for 50 years. Can you help me with this? And so we began to meet at a caribou coffee off and on and talk about things. I'd give him things to read and he would say, I'm going down to Orlando this week to meet with the Crusade leaders or the Crusade president and, you know, here's a question for you. So we would talk about it. I'd give him something more to read and I'd read papers he was writing and I'd say, well, yes, 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 but how about this too? You know, and that went on for a while and finally he took me into a global conference call one June morning with the Crusade leaders from around the world for about an hour on this very question we're talking about here, actually. then um, out of that call, their desire, these people on the phone call, said, well, would you come talk about this with this annual gathering of all the Crusade leaders from around the world in Mexico City in the fall? So I went with Bob down for this meeting for a little while and spent a day talking to probably 125 people who were, you know, the person in charge of China and the person in charge of whatever it is, you know, for Crusade's ministry around the world. And spent the whole day talking about this very same idea that we're talking about this weekend, really. Um, I've known Crusade for a long time in my life. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, and I know lots of stories of people who are, you know, serious about God and the world, who found their way to faith through hearing about, You know, the gospel through the ministry of Campus Crusade. I honor that. Um, I also know, when Bob said to me, I think we've been teaching vocational for 50 years. Can you help me? What he was saying was something I also knew of Crusade, that the typical spring banquet speech that Crusade leadership gives to its students in universities all over the world is this. April comes, and the spring is there, and the banquet's to happen, and graduation's almost, you know, to to be there, and the banquet at speech is essentially this all over the world. Those of you who are most serious about the gospel, we invite you to join Campus Crusade staff. And those of you who are not quite sure about that, not quite in that place in your lives, at least go get a secular job and support your friends who go on staff, okay? That sounds crude, but that's literally true. I mean, it may be done differently with different words and now obviously, I'm giving a short cut to the you know chase version of it here, but that is the global message all over the world that the crusade has been teaching for fifty years and Bob, you know who because we have a good friend of mine, said to me, I think we've been teaching this wrong for fifty years. Could you help me with this? So I spent this day with the crusade leaders in Mexico City a couple of years ago talking this through later in the afternoon, kind of like maybe sort of like this time, but maybe it was before o'clock or so, um, a guy from you know, one part of the world said to me, yes, I, mean, I hear what you're saying, and I, 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 you're right about this. But he said, I know there's a question looming at large in the room here. What about the Great Commission? I said, okay, why don't you ask that question? We have the next question time. And, uh, so he did, and, and I would make no argument that I made the definitive answer to the question at all. But this is how I put it then. Maybe I would put it this way now to whoever asked the question here. I said, you know, I understand in evangelical history, in you know, the modern West, you know, we have labeled certain things as we have. You know, there's no you know, Bible description. There's no sort of gospel description of the end of Matthew 28 being the Great Commission. We've done that within contemporary evangelicalism, and I don't disagree with that in some kind of fundamental way. But we're not sort of operating from, and Jesus taught this, didn't he? He identified it like this, didn't he? Um, What are the words, again? To go out into all the world and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we have to ask the question, so what did he command us? I mean, what is the commandment of God here? what has been taught by Jesus that we're now to go off into the world to teach. I said, well, if we're going to do something like call this the Great Commission, can I offer to you the, great, the first of the Great Commissions? Maybe the Grand Commission. You could name it what you want to name it. I said, let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2, could we? And ask the question, so why were we made in the first place? Who are we to be on the face of the earth anyway? And to realize that, in fact, as some traditions name this, it is the first mandate, it is the creation mandate, it is the cultural mandate. It is this mandate for human beings to live on the face of the earth, under God, representing God, being God's people on the face of the earth, and to see what's possible to be done, to till the created order, to see what, in fact, you might imagine happening and doing and bringing into being over the course of time. Could you somehow maybe even make an iPhone someday? I don't know, but maybe you could really. You know? Could you do neurosurgery someday? Is it possible in fact to actually to you know to work at verticillium wilt and actually to reverse you know generations and centuries of you know cotton disease problems and actually begin to push back against the effects of the fall, you know, and be able to actually to see how this might be done? Could you make tasty, healthy food on the face of the earth? Could you in fact plant this seed and grow this animal? I mean, could you, could you, could you, could you really? I mean, what could you do on the face of the earth? You see, it is a call to till the created order, to see what might be done, image bearers of God as you are, created to be creative like me. You be creative on the face of the earth and see what might happen as you work out imaginatively, persistently, with discipline and passion the gifts that have been given to you in the world. The fall, of course, changes that story. You know, Because, of course, ruin comes and skewedness happens and distortion takes place. And, of course, no longer is it going to be, you know, we do this and we see what might happen and glory be to God, really. But now it becomes often a skewed unfolding of this created reality. Or dominion, good word as it was meant to be in Genesis 1 and 2, begins to be selfish and greedy and lustful and it's about me and it's about mine and it's no longer a concern for being in the world for God's sake and the sake of God's people in the world but actually it's a concern for being about me and what I want really and we could play that story out for hours and hours here but you see my only point to these people was simply you know if we're going to call this the Great Commission well let's just keep the story the long story it is, the real story it really is, the true story The story doesn't begin in Matthew 28. In fact, Matthew 28 only makes sense, actually, if there's a longer story. And the story actually begins at the beginning of time, at creation, which actually still is imprinted DNA-like on your heart and mine. Um, So...
0: How do we apply this idea of vocation to life outside our careers? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I make a distinction between vocation and occupation, or maybe even between calling and career. So given who I am, and you get some sense you know, of that, and you have to smile at it at the end of the day, that I'm mm-hmm. this and not that, and I'm just sorry, I guess. But, um, but I am a certain kind of a person, and I am the kind of person who probably might surprise you because I actually would like to talk to all of you if we had a chance to do that. So, I do spend hours of my weeks talking to people, whether they're 25-year-old, you know, people on pilgrimages away from their childhood faith, or whether they're, you know, 55-year-old, you know, business people, or, you know, whatever they might be, really. That's what I do a lot of in my life, frankly. Um, so a lot of the conversations I have are over brown Starbucks napkins, um, and I've offered, you know, many of them in service to God and the world. thinking, well, good for you, Starbucks, you know. One more brown napkin we've worked out the meaning of life on.
0: Um, I
1: often write on a Starbucks napkin two circles. And the circles are overlapping a little bit in the middle. And one circle has the letter V and the other the letter O. And for the V, it's the circle of vocation. And O is the circle of occupation. You can imagine, again, given who I am, that I have a lot of conversation with people about this very question, in all sorts of ways across the spectrum of the human heart. You know, people who feel like I was made to do this, I want to do this, I'm doing this. You know, in all sorts of ways, I hear those things week after week of my life, and I've come to think that maybe it's helpful to imagine these two circles in this way. Uh, vocation being the circle which describes. How I was made, who I was meant to be, you know, what I love to do with my life, what I really go up in the morning thinking, I want to do this, I love to do this. Or in Eric Little's famous words in the film, at least, you know, God made me fast. When I run, I feel His pleasure. You know, I mean, all of us, I think, have something like that hidden away. Sometimes very on the surface of our lives, but it's there, I think, for all of us if we can find our way in. But occupation is a different word. It's the word that describes the place, the people, in a sense, that we occupy as we live out our lives over time. So occupy, occupation, in my mind, are related words. So that I'm I'm occupying certain relationships and responsibilities over the course of my life, even as I'm working out my vocation over time. And because it's a now-but-not-yet world, there 's only going to be some overlap between them. They never will be the same circle completely. they just can 't be for anybody now sometimes by the grace of god there 's more overlap than other times, and sometimes because of heartache and sorrow and human hearts and history there 's hardly any connection at all between what I do day by day and what I feel like I really want to do with my life really um, none of us I think are really want to con- are content to live leave that way, that way I mean if we had a chance to enter into your life and you could say, well, listen, I could introduce you to so-and-so. In fact, this would move you in this direction. I mean, They'd want that conversation because they don't really want to keep living life as if somehow there's no relation between my occupation and my vocation. But I think for none of us, will they ever be the same circle completely?
0: One last one. Uh, Is there a difference between vocation and the biblical word ministry? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, the biblical word ministry is the word
1: service. right? So that is what the word is. I mean, we need to kind of be biblically honest about that. I mean, that is what the word is. It is service. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, again, I mean, it's a long story. It's the creation to consummation story. So I do think within that large story. I don't not do that. Um, so I'm thinking always really about... You know what we were what life was meant to be what it ought to be and what it someday will be I'm um, always thinking that way either explicitly or you know implicitly I am um, uh, so I think you know when you're beginning to take words apart and begin to look at them carefully there's always a danger you know in your heart and mind to do what's called eisegesis rather than exegesis Eisegesis, of course is reading into the text or to the word what you want to read into it I bring this history. I bring who I am. I bring this wound. I bring this experience. And, of course, when I read this in the story, well, I'm reading it because that happened to me you know, 20 years ago. You
0: know. um,
1: in some senses, we're all always doing it because we can never, the viewer is always viewing. I do believe that's true, actually. But we're trying somehow to listen attentively to the text, too, and make sure that more than not, we're actually letting the text teach us Rather than us read into the text. So when I hear the word ministry and ask, well, is it different than vocation? Um, you know, I think in some ways, I mean, we probably should sort of flesh it out with somebody if you really wanted to do that. I mean, I don't think that you could find, you know, as you listen to the word, that word used, especially in, in, in the epistles, I think that's where, where that word comes out more. Uh, I don't think you can find it to be you know, a word which is you know Dave has service to offer to God in the world, and you know and Gary, you don't you know, um, I mean the <laughs> Ephesians puts it this way: you know he's equipped you, he's gifted you to equip the saints for the work of service um, and because I believe the story is this long one from creation to consummation, I sometimes, if it seems appropriate to say... Equip them for service in and through their vocations.
0: Amen, (laughs) brother.